How are you? My name is David, and I'm an alcoholic. And through God's grace, and only through God's grace. Thank you, Cincinnati. Good to see y'all. And through the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous and through a sponsor who was willing to be patient and honest with me, I've been sober since April 13, 1988. And for that, I'm very grateful. It's great to see some people I haven't seen in about a year, year and a half since uh, the Buckeye Roundup up in, uh, down in Cincinnati, so it's a great pleasure to be uh, back up here. It's also a pleasure to speak in any meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, to see Dick and to have him visit in from uh, Omaha, Nebraska, and Liz and others that have just been real special. And, of course, uh, Keith and Sally. We spoke together at Jackson's uh, Mill, uh, West Virginia, back in the beautiful October time where the leaves were just gorgeous. And thank you so much for what you shared, and I really appreciate it. As I told Keith last night, I hugged him, and I said there was something just real special about what you shared, Keith, and I appreciate it. And, Sally, you have been so helpful to me. Thank you for your lead today. Just a real special person. Nancy, I hadn't met you before, but thank you for your... I, I loved your humor and I loved your honesty. Thank you so much for what you shared. And is Jeannie here? I can't see her. I'm, I, right here. What a wonderful job this morning. Thank you so much for sharing. And, and uh, I know that deal about not sleeping, but once... I mean, every other hour waking up, I've been through that. I can, I can identify. I want to talk to you about a disease I have. You know, I came to this program back in 1988, and I honestly thought I was a bad person. I don't know if you know what I'm saying. It's like all of my life, I was, uh, in fact, I lived 39 years, 11 months, and three weeks, exactly, <laughs> thinking I was a bad person. I mean, I'm serious. I mean, if I, if I could just get it right, if I could just try harder, you know, if, if things would just work out for me, if I could just think harder, if I would just try, you know, if I would just do something different, if, 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 if you know, and I, but I never could get there. And I got to this treatment center, and they told me I had a disease. In fact, when I got to the treatment center, I didn't have the disease. I caught it there, I think, when I was on the hallways. Or something. <laughs> I just had a little problem or two, you know, when I got there. But while I was there, you know, about three days into it, I caught it. You know, it was real, real serious. Serious case of it, too, and I'll tell you about it. But I, I was there for, for 30 days, and then I was there in, in, in inpatient. And then I was there for two more months in a halfway house. And Claire, this wonderful counselor who had worked with me every day, including Saturday mornings, Six days a week for about uh, three months. She came to me, and as I was leaving, packing up, taking my bags downstairs to leave, you know what she said to me? She said, David, if you go back out there and you try to be good, if you just try to clean up your life, you know, try to, to do things different, try to stop drinking, try to stop drinking, if you just try to do those things, if you go back out there and try to be good, you're going to go back out, and I don't know if there's any hope for you. She said, if you will accept the fact that you have a disease, the disease of alcoholism. And if you will go to AA, and if you will work with a sponsor, and if you will work the 12 steps, which is the only, the only recovery, the only release from this, this uh, malady, from this disease that's deadly, if you will do that, you'll have a good life. And I looked at her and I said, what are you talking about? She said, what would you do if you broke both your legs and they put you in a body cast up to your armpits? I said, I'd lay in bed, I guess. I couldn't walk. And she said, how long would you lay there? I said, probably seven weeks until the cast was cut off. She said, if you will give yourself seven weeks to heal from two broken legs, will you please give yourself several years of going to meetings every day, every day, every day, because you're going to need it to stay sober. And I thought about that. You know, I would give myself seven weeks. I wouldn't have a choice. <laughs> I'd lay in the bed with my cast. And I thought about that. Would I be willing to make a commitment out of that halfway house to go every day for a period of time? She didn't say how long. She just said, just keep going. Get a sponsor, work steps. And so I want to talk to you about these, this disease of mine. The last the, a period of time I've been in recovery, my sponsor and I have spent a lot of time trying not to figure out the disease, not trying to figure out why. It's like the license plate on the truck that hits you. It's interesting information, but it doesn't do you any good. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it doesn't do you a bit of good. 
what I'm going to talk about is this disease as it applies to my life. There's a section in the big book I think that really describes my disease, and it's one of the most special sections to me. It's on page 62. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of all of our troubles, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. We step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate, seemingly without provocation. But invariably we find that at some time in the past we have made decisions based on self, and we've harmed those people. And so it's justified. You know, I never could figure out why these people kept hurting me and, uh, and, and I understand. But this hundreds of forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, it's like this. It's like the first memory I had, by the way, when I came here, I didn't have a memory. It's like uh, somebody said last night, I loved it. They, they said they discovered a whole new child or a no, whole new life, a d- different perspective. And, and that's exactly what happened. I went back and, and through my fourth and fifth step and sixth and seventh step work, went back into uh, looking. And I was a, I was a neat little kid. I, had a, I liked to talk like Donald Duck, and I loved uh, hanging upside down on gym sets and stuff like that, red-haired, you know, freckled face and all that stuff. But the earliest memory I have, I was, I, was, uh, I was in a car with my brother Larry. He was 16 months, three days older. He still is. Nothing's changed there. And, and we were riding to an aunt's house. My mother was in the front seat, and my dad was driving. And my mother turned. I'll never forget it. And I was either five or six, something like that. And she said, when we get to Aunt Sue's, don't you ask one thing. And she was pointing right in my face. Don't you ask for one thing, not even a drop of water. Because when we leave Aunt Sue's, I don't want them to say, Letha and Claudia, that's my mom and my dad, are welcome back here. But those mean youngins, by the way, that's Southern for children, are never welcome back here again. <laughs> and I said, oh, and so I'm getting to the house. And the next memory I have, you know what it was? I was sitting on a bench, a wooden bench by the hallway to the back door. All the parents and adults were in there in the living room talking and laughing. And, you know, and, and I wouldn't even ask for a drop of water. And I was sitting there and I, did, I sat on my hands. I don't think I ever did that. But I sat on my hands. I was afraid if I touched something, I'd get in trouble. So I'm sitting there, and I started to do something then. I don't know exactly if it was that day, but I, here's what happened. When anybody would walk within about 10 feet of me, I'd smile like this, and I'd start shaking my head like this. I'm not even Japanese. You know what I'm saying? I'm not, I'm not even Japanese. But, but I'd start shaking my head like this, and then these, these words started coming out. I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. I call it fining. I perfected fine into a fine art. I did it all my life. You know, I'm fine. How are you? How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, and, and I would ask people, I'd say, are you okay? And you know, are you okay? And you know what I was really asking them? Not if they were okay. Was I okay with them? Are we okay? I wouldn't say that. Am I okay with you? If people had a hard time leaving me, if they were frowning on their face or if they weren't happy, I'd say, excuse me, I've got to ask you another question. I would want to talk to them until they had a smile. And if they had a smile, then it wasn't about me. You know, it, I was okay. And that, that fear, that fear. And, 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 you know, we got in the car at the end of that, uh, that uh, visit. And you know what I did? As soon as the doors were closed, I said, Mom, how did I do? Am I going to be invited back? How, how did I do? And I don't know if you know what I mean by that feeling of not wanting. You don't know if you're going to be invited back. You don't know if you're going to be there. That feeling, that fear, hundreds of forms of fear. It's kind of like this. It's like God called all the eight-year-olds in the world together and he put them in a stadium. And he said, now I'm going to tell you about how to grow up and how to go through puberty and how to date and how to get married and graduate from high school and go on to school or get a job and be, have children and be responsible. And just before he started, I said, I've got to go to the bathroom. And so I went to the bathroom. And I came back and God was saying, and now you know all the secrets there are in the world. And from that age, from that age, I would go out. In fact, on the way out to the stadium, they'd say, you know about dating, don't you? And I said, of course I do. I didn't know. I did not have a clue. You know about growing up, don't you, David? Of course I do. I didn't know. You know about puberty, don't you do? I, of course I do. I didn't know. I thought I was having cancer until my brother straightened me out. You know, I, said, I had no idea what was going on. No idea. You know about dating? Of course I do. I did not know. 
hundreds of forms of fear. I didn't know how to live. I, did, I thought everybody had the script. You know, everybody had, the, had the, the pattern. Everybody knew the answers. And I had to pretend I did because I didn't know. But I could not tell you. See, my worst fear was that you were going to find out that I didn't know. And that you were going to find out I was afraid. So I had to be fine. I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. I was in Dallas, Texas in 88, and a guy named Joe in a meeting said, alcoholism is the disease characterized by pyramiding thoughts. And I thought, that's kind of, what does that mean? And I went to him afterwards, and I said, tell me what that means, and let me tell you what it has come to mean to me. Because this is a way of fear and self-delusion that I've never, I never, I thought it was, everybody did it, but it's really disease, I think. These thoughts come right out of the center of my brain, and it's not a pyramid like this, it's a pyramid like this. And let me tell you about it. I can be sitting in my office at 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning, People going by, how are you, David? I'm fine, how are you? Good morning, I'm fine, how are you? I'm fine, I'm fine, how are you? My boss walks by, and I, I say, good morning, Don, how you doing? And he doesn't speak. And I'll go, hey, Don, good morning. You know, straining over the, you know, he doesn't speak. Now, let me tell you what happens to me. I start thinking, this thought pattern starts. First thought, I wonder why he didn't speak. Second thought, just filling up this pyramid real quick. Boom, 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 boom. I wonder why he didn't speak. He probably's upset with me. Well, what's he upset about? I bet it was that project I gave him yesterday, that meeting. He didn't like what I said in that meeting. Well, we're going to have a meeting at 2 today, and I bet he's going to fire me. You know what I'm saying? He's going to fire me. At 10 o'clock, I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. At 10.01, I'm fired. In my mind, I'm thinking I'm fired. I'm fired. And then I'll start pyramid on top of the pyramid. I'll go, well, if he fires me, I've got to go down and get an unemployment check at the unemployment office. What if they won't give me one? You know what I'm saying? And so I start this period. I can't, if I can't get an unemployment check, then I can't feed my family. At 10 o'clock, I'm fine. How are you? At 10 one, I'm fired. And at 10 one and a half, I can't get an unemployment check. I haven't left my desk. I haven't left my desk. And the funny part about it is if anybody walks in in that thought process and says, Good morning, David. How are you doing? You know what I'll say? I'm fine. How are you? Right in the middle of being fired. You know, I don't know if it ever happened to you, but I get up and I was, I'll do this at 7 o'clock on Tuesday, you know, and I'm, I'm getting a shower and I scratch it. It's got a little pimple down on my calf and I scratch it, you know, and scratch it a couple more times. It looks kind of, you know, irritated. I get in the shower, scratch it a couple more times, get out, dry off, and I'm looking down now and putting my socks and I'm going, I wonder what that is. <laughs> Here it goes. Here it goes. That looks pretty serious. It's got a, a red circle around it. I wonder if it's a tumor. <laughs> seven o'clock I'm getting ready to go to work and I thought well if it is they're gonna have to cut my leg off right here and I'm gonna have to have a prosthesis you know and so I'm sitting there wondering where am I gonna get a prosthesis and all the... I'm trying to get ready to go to work I thought I only did it with bad things I was in the shower about five years ago and I was humming this country and western tune I don't know why I was humming that country and western tune because my life was going along pretty well at that time but I did hum this country and western tune I got out and I was drying off and I went to the, to the uh, sink and I was shaving and I was looking in the, in the mirror and I was shaving and my next conscious thought was, where am I going to get a tour bus? A tour bus, you know, a tour bus, a tour bus. Yeah. I'm sitting there shaving. I'm thinking, I don't need a tour bus. You know what, what do I need a tour And I went back and put it together and I think it went something like this. The first thought, hmm, I bet if I sang country western music a little bit, I could practice and get good. It sounds pretty good humming it. Second thought, if I get a couple of guys together and we get a couple of gigs around town here at a couple of locations, then we could go out to Nashville and I could practice out there and get good and then get a contract to go on tour and I'll need a, a tour bus. Of course, it all makes sense. Yeah. It all makes sense. 
A priest said in a meeting of A, I was in, in Tokyo at a meeting and about uh, six years ago, and he said, we were talking about where is God, and he said, God is in that thin membrane between the past and the future called now. You see, that's where God is. And you know what? I don't know how to be there. I don't know how to live in the now. And this program, this 12-step program, is allowing me to learn how to be in the now. I've never known. I've been in the past and I've been in the future. And I'm, I'm you know, in my thinking in this so hundred forms of fear and hundred forms of self-delusion. That's where I've been. I've got cancer. You know, the year before I came to recovery, I was in the hospital for over 20 days, two different medical centers, Duke. And I told them I had cancer of the liver, and, and they knew it, and they were trying to fix me. And finally, after 23 days and thousands of dollars worth of tests, they said, Mr. Lloyd, you are perfectly physically uh, uh, wonderful. But you, we've got a, a ward for you that will help you a great deal. <laughs> and I, I, they wanted me to go down to psych ward, I think. Just check it out. <clears throat> hundreds of forms of fear. Hundreds of forms of, of self-delusion. Do you know, it's no wonder that I was never present in my family. You know what I'm saying? Growing up, and it, I would sit there, and, 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 and as a child, as a teenager, as an adult with my family, on Friday night, it was a time to celebrate. It was a time for the week to be over. And you know what I was thinking? That project I got next Tuesday, you know, what about that thing next Thursday? What am I going to say? What am I going to say to my boss Monday morning? And, and, what, and I was afraid. I was hundreds of forms of fear, self-delusion. I never could be present. I can never be present until March 22nd, 1966. And you know what I did? I went to a bar called The Rascaler in Greenville, North Carolina, and I was a college freshman, and I went in and I ordered a Paps Blue Ribbon. And you know I drank that Paps Blue Ribbon, and I ordered another one. And you know what happened to me? I was present. You know what I'm saying? I was fine. I mean, I was really fine. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I was really. I mean, I walked over and asked this girl to dance, and I was singing, and I could tell jokes, and my body was limber. My feet would move. I mean, I was in great. I was present. I was in the now. And do you know what I did for 22 years? I drank to get back to Greenville, North Carolina, March 22nd, 1966, because that feeling, that time when it was just present and I was okay, that wonderful feeling was what I was after. The only problem, the more I drank, it would come. I could feel Greenville coming. Here it comes and zoom right by me. <laughs> you know, zoom, you know. And I was drunk again. You know what I'm saying? I didn't know how I got drunk. I just wanted to get back to Greenville. What happened? Hundreds of forms of fear, self-delusion. I was a, a teenager. My mother, we uh, raised pigs and chickens, and, and we had a farm stuff, small farm, just a little uh, garden type thing. And, and my mother would get 200 pounds of Purina pig feed sack. My daddy would go get them. And, and they would take this cloth. I want to tell you about this. They would make, uh, my mother would make uh, shirts, my brother and I. Now, let me tell you about this, uh, this cloth. She would call it pig feed sacks. And that's what I call them, my pig feed sack shirts. I guess you can tell I like them. And, and this cloth would come in white cloth. And it had green stems and green leaves. And had a purple flower on it or two. You know, it was orchids or something. It's not a shirt a guy should have to wear. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and my mother would make these shirts. And they were very interesting shirts. She put a lot of starch, you know, starch next to godliness or something. And, and she, but she, the collars were very unusual. She started the collars here, and they came on out, and they came on out, and they came on out, and they came on out about six or eight inches off the shoulder blades to this real sharp point. And, and, and I don't know why she did that, but she put a lot of starch in them. And it was in the day before the flying nun was popular on TV. You know what I'm saying? And, and I would get my book bag, this, you know, freckle faced, skinny little redheaded boy, and I'd run to the books, uh, this bus, trying to be fine, I'm fine, how are you? My pig feet sack shirt on, and I'd start running, and my collars would catch wind and start flapping. You know? It was 13. I was 13 that summer. And I was wearing a pig feet sack shirt. And my mother said, go get your eggs. We've been shelling butter beans all day in, in the hot summer sun. And, and so I got on my bike and I went with my half-pound Maxwell House coffee can. And I got 20 uh, my, my eggs and put them in the basket. And I came back. 
And by the way, on the way down, she said, don't you ride that bike, David. You'll fall and break those eggs. And I, I pretended I didn't hear her. And so I hit my brakes at the back porch. The bike slid out from under me, and I was laying on my right side, half on the bike, half under the bike, with these 13 raw eggs in my face, mud all over my pig feet sack shirt. And my mother went berserk. She really did. And she came down, and as I started to get back up, she kicked me back down. And as I got back up, she kicked me back down. And, you know, I don't know how many times that happened, but I do remember my Aunt Marie said, Letha, you're going to kill that boy. And she stopped. And I was laying there in these raw eggs with my pig feet sack shirt on. And I started to get back up, and she took the broom we'd been sweeping the halls with, and she broke it across my back. And I fell that time, and you know what happened to me? I really believe it. At that moment, the next few moments, the next few days, the next few weeks, the next 27 years of my life, I decided that the God I understood as a child was not going to help me. Just wasn't. And that if I was going to survive this thing called life, I was going to have to get up off that ground and I was going to have to do it myself. You see. I understood God as a... I was a kid and I'd fly my bike, I'm a kites, and, and I'd watch as a six or seven-year-old and I'd watch these clouds come by and I'd and make shapes. Here comes a rabbit and here comes a dog. And, and you know what I thought if I looked long and hard enough? God was going to stick his head out and go, Hi, Dave, how you doing? I was going to go, Oh, hi, God, how you doing? Well, what you doing? I'm fine, I'm fine. How are you, God? You know, something like that. I really thought of God as that type of friend. And laying on that ground that day, I decided that that God was not going to help me. Hundreds of forms of fear, self-delusion, and self-seeking. You see, I think that's the spiritual part of my disease. See, when I put myself in the center of my life, only where God belongs, that's when I'm spiritually sick, even to this day. That's when I'm spiritually sick. You see, what I tried to do at that moment in the next few moments is to have a plan. You know, people say, what do you want to be? I didn't have a plan. I didn't get, I didn't get to go to the meeting in the stadium. I was in the bathroom. I did not know about children. I did not know about growing up. I didn't know any of that stuff. But I had to have a plan. And so my plan was to get an education and get off of Garner Road to buy store-bought shirts, <laughs> get rid of the pig feed sack shirts in my life, to go on with my life. I had to be successful. I did not know what successful meant. But I had to be. I had to be. And so I went to college and I started to drink. And that, that first night on March 22nd, I told you about it. And you know what I did after that? I drank some more. You know why I drank some more? It wasn't, for the, it wasn't for the taste of the drinking or the social aspect. It was for the feeling. It was for allowing this brain to slow down. It was for allowing this brain to stop thinking. I could be present and I didn't have to plan. I didn't care what was going to happen the next day. I didn't care. Two years after I started drinking, I was getting married and I moved a... Uh, washer and dryer. And I tell this part of my story because I think it's very important for me. I, uh, I tore some muscles in his shoulder doing that. And they put me in the hospital and I was getting married in three days. And so the doctor gave me Valium and Darvon for pain, Valium for muscle spasms. He said, I want you to take this every four hours and you can get out and get married and go on with your life. Well, I took it every four hours for the next 20 years. <laughs> Did exactly what he said. 7 a.m., 11 a.m., 3 p.m., 7 p.m., 11 p.m., 3 in the morning, if I was still awake. I live by a clock. I am an alcoholic, and please hear that. I am an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic because nothing I took by mouth could do for me what alcohol did for me. Just couldn't. It, alcohol could get me exactly almost back to Greenville. Almost. You know, I came within 10 minutes and two beers of having my life figured out many times. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you ever did that, but I sit at a bar, you know, and give me another beer, and I got a napkin, a wet napkin, I'm writing a song or a note or a letter to somebody, and I'm going to figure it out. I got it all figured out. My life's right here on this napkin. Give me another beer. Give me, you know, I'm almost, I just, just, just give me 10 more minutes. Just, you know, and I'd wake up the next morning, and I didn't have it figured out. I'd try to read this stuff, you know, 
almost had it figured out. I continued to drink. I continued to take those, that, those pills. And somebody asked me when I'm in recovery, say, how much did you drink? And you know what I tell them? Whatever it took that, that day, that particular day, to get me to where I needed to go. I don't know if you know what I'm saying. To get me out of those feelings, out of that self-delusion, out of that self-pity, out of that whole thing, the self-seeking, I had to have some relief from that. I want to talk to you about the last two years I drank. I drank for 22 years. But I don't want to really talk about the, the drunk I want to get into recovery. And I want to tell you about those last two years. I wanted to be successful. I wanted to do those things that I thought I needed to do. And what I started doing was falling, passing out in my easy chair in my den. And my, my family, start, my wife and children started leaving and going staying with her mother. Or they would just go on to bed. And I'd wake up sometime in the morning, come to, and I'd urinate it all over myself and all over my easy chair. You know, when I was laying on the ground at 13, <laughs> going to be successful and going to make this thing called life, I didn't plan on urinating on myself in my easy chair. That was not a part of my plan. It just was not. I saw my son, my 13-year-old son, deathly afraid of me. He was deathly afraid of me, and I had that moment of clarity to be able to see that in his eyes. You know, and I think that's what meetings do for me. If I stop coming to meetings, you know what I think I'm going to lose? I'm going to stop being able to renew that moment of clarity when I saw for the moment what I was doing to myself and to others with my disease of alcoholism. And if I don't come back and help, let you help renew my moment, then I'm going to lose it. I really believe I'll lose it. Last two years, the only place I felt safe in my whole world was a five-foot by seven-foot bathroom with a tub, a toilet, and a magazine rack, an exhaust fan, and a door with louvers on it. That's where I felt safe. You see, I didn't have any more answers to questions. I had been fine. I'm fine. How are you? And I had to have answers. I didn't have any more answers. I did not even have any questions to have answers to. I did not want to talk to anybody. I did not want to see anybody. When I got off work, I had rules. I couldn't drink before 5.01 because I'd be an alcoholic. My uncle uh, had a serious alcohol problem, and he used to live behind our home when I was a teenager in boxes and, and refrigerator and stove boxes, and he'd come up and beg food and clothing after my dad left, and he want money. And, you know, I wasn't like Uncle C.G. He lived in boxes. I had a home, and I had a job. And, and if I didn't drink before 5.01, I would be okay. And then it was 4 o'clock, and then it was 3.30. And I would mix vodka and Diet Pepsi because it looked pres- I was fine. I, I'm just drinking some Diet Pepsi. They couldn't smell the vodka, right? And so I'd just, I just erp- keep upping it and keep upping it. And then I would go get, I'd go get my beer, and I'd leave, and I'd go down to this cul-de-sac, and I'd sit there and turn the radio on, and I would just you know, drink my beer, th- three or four. And you know what happened between three and four beers? I felt fine. How are you? I'm fine. I'd go on home. And if my wife was in the kitchen, I'd put my, my beer and lock it up in the trunk. See, I didn't want anybody to know I was drinking. It's a real big secret. <laughs> Self-delusion. <laughs> Our delusion. And so I would then, when she'd leave, I'd go and I'd run it and I'd put it in the bottom of the refrigerator in the celery carrots and lettuce drawer, I call it my garden drawer, and I'd, I'd pull all that stuff forward and lay it on the bottom and cover it up with all that stuff so she wouldn't know it was there. And I'd take the box about halfway down and I'd go in and I'd say, how are y'all doing? Everything good? And she'd say, oh, the washing machine's knocking and dripping a little water and David made a 62 in algebra. And I'd say, about 20 minutes or so, I'd say, excuse me, I've got to go to the bathroom. And I'd go into the kitchen and I wore sports coats and I would take and put a beer in this pocket and a beer in this pocket. And I'd walk humpback like this so you could not see my beer sticking out. And I'd walk down to the end of the hall and get into my bathroom, close the door. I was a closet smoker the last five years I smoked because I didn't think anybody knew I was smoking. I told them I didn't. And so I would go into the bathroom. I'd lock the door, turn on the exhaust fan, get me a pack of cigarettes out from under my magazine rack where I hid them. And I'd take me a magazine and take my two beers out of my pockets and put them on the magazine rack. I'd pop me a top, drink me a beer, smoke me a cigarette, read me a magazine. How much better could you want it? You know what I'm saying? How much better could you want it? And I sit there and I drink the other beer and you know, I smoke me another cigarette. I mean, I was like the life of Riley. I mean, I was having a ball in there. It was just great. Nobody could get to me. The phone ring. He's in the bathroom. He can't come to the phone. If my children would come and knock on him, I'd be in there for 20, 30 minutes drinking me two beers, you know, and having a ball by myself with the ceramic tile bathroom. And then, you know what I do? 
I'd get up and I'd flush the toilet with the ashes and the cigarette butts down there and flush the toilet. Then I'd take these two beer cans and I'd wrap them in toilet tissue. I do not know why I did that. And I'd put them back in my pockets. I don't know why I did that. And I'd spray the room with Lysol disinfectant, spray me and walk out and grab a little swig of Lavois and spit it out in the sink so they couldn't smell me, you know, drinking, smoking. I'd go back and I'd take my cans or the toilet paper on and put them back down halfway in the kitchen. I don't know why I did that in the trash. And I'd go back and I'd say, now tell me about that washing machine. I was fine. 20 minutes later, you know what I'd do? I got to go to the bathroom. I know my children thought I had the worst case of dysentery of any human being that ever lived. And I'd go get me two more beers. I did that all night long until they finally stopped. And on Saturdays, you know what I'd do? For over two years, I would get drunk and I'd sit there, live on a lake with a little 14-foot John boat. And I had detailed plan of how I was going to go out and drown myself at a certain point. 25 feet of water, I knew exactly how deep the water was. And I was going to take two 55-pound cinder blocks with a rope and I was going to tie the rope around my left angle and I was going to throw the blocks over and I was going to go over with them, pretending like I got caught in the rope and it was going to be my anchor. 110 pounds of cinder block in a 14-foot boat. Made a lot of sense, didn't it? And so I would go over in the water and the next thing I'd feel is this, uh, I'd see the air bubbles going up and I'd take this deep breath and my, my lungs would burn. I'm sitting there getting drunk the whole day thinking of this detail then I'd be in the casket and I knew I was in the casket because people would come by with their hands I could see their hands and they'd say poor David if he hadn't married that woman he'd have married he'd have been a good man <laughs> poor David if he hadn't worked so hard he'd have been okay poor David those children drove him crazy and after three or four such poor David you know what I'd do I'd come too and you know why because I hadn't tied the rope right See, I hadn't tied the rope so they thought it was an accident. See, it had to be an accident. Double indemnity, life insurance. I had to be fine. You know, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm killing myself, but I'm fine. I'm fine. It was just an accident. He was a good man. It was the only thing besides alcohol that gave me a sense of peace. And finally, my family did an intervention on me. They said, you're sick. And I agreed with them. <laughs> I kind of agreed with them. And I really think my disease, my desire to be fine, and my desire to please people actually got me into treatment because I said, yeah, I'll go. I'll do anything to please you. Kind of like what I heard <laughs> this afternoon. I'll do anything. And so I went to treatment. You know what Claire said to me? I was there three days, and she looked at me, and she said, why are you so angry? And I said, me angry? I'm fine. How are you? You know? I just, and she said, you're angry. You know how the group gets nosy? They jump on you and say, you know, you're lying to us. You're lying to yourself. You know how that stuff goes. And so I said, okay, I'm angry. <laughs> and they said, who are you angry with? And I said, my mother. You know. And so I told them all the stories at 15 and 13 and 17 and 19, all the things she did to me and all the things she said to me and all the things that my parents did. And I told her all of that. And you know what she said to me? She said, David, let me ask you a question. I said, sure. She said, where is your mother? I said, well, she's several hundred miles away. She lives in North Carolina. I was out of state in treatment up in Wisconsin, in fact, Milwaukee. And she said to me, she said, uh, what do you think your mother had for dinner last night? I said, Claire, I don't know. I was here in detox. I have no idea what she had for dinner. She said, what do you think she had? I said, well, she probably had, uh, I don't know, pork chops, you know, potatoes, and, you know, string beans and tea and a little lemon ring pie or something like that, a roll. She said, David, what did you have in detox here last night for dinner? I said, well, I wasn't too hungry, Claire. You know, I was dealing with a few things, you know, a little nauseated in the stomach, you know how it is, and trying to get through my life here and trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And she said, okay. She said, David, how much sleep do you think your mother got last night? <laughs> And I said, I don't know. She said, yes. I said, seven hours. She said, David, how much sleep did you get last night here in detox? And I said, well, I was, you know, thinking of a few things, trying to figure out my life. I wanted to smoke a little bit, you know, and, and I didn't get a lot of maybe an hour, an hour and a half. And she said, okay. She said, David, what do you think your mother had for breakfast this morning? And I said, I don't know. She said, well, take a guess. I said, okay, two eggs over easy, grits, sausage, uh, toast, with a little uh, strawberry jam and, and some orange juice. She said, David, what did you have for breakfast this morning? I said, well, Claire, I wasn't too hungry. You know, I had a little nausea. I was a little upset, you know, trying to figure out my life. You know what I'm saying? 
trying to figure it out, and so I had a little toast and coffee. And she said, she said, David, where is your mother right now? And I said, well, I guess she's home. It was like 9.30 or 45 in the morning. I said, she's at home. Probably she's 69. She's retired. She's probably watching a soap opera or, or talking to a friend or watching a game show on TV. And she looked at me and she said, David, where are you right now? And for the first time in my life, and I was 39 years, 11 months, and three weeks old, I stopped and I said, I'm sitting in a damn detox center trying to kill myself. And you know what she said to me? She said, it seems to me, David, that your mother's life is going along pretty well. And it seems to me that you're killing yourself. She said, it seems to me that your mother doesn't even know you're fighting her. I said, of course she knows. I mean, if you're fighting somebody and they don't know you're fighting them, then how can there be a fight? She said, have you ever walked up to your mother and grabbed her by the blouse, or her blouse and pulled her face to your face and said, Mother, every day the rest of my life I'm going to show you and let her go. I said, no, I've never done that. She said, then she does not know. The fight you're fighting is between your two ears. That's the fight you're fighting. And you've got to choose to stop fighting her. I said, how do I do that? She said, you've got to choose to stop fighting her by admitting that you're powerless over alcohol, that your life is very unmanageable. You've got to admit that you're powerless over your mother, that your life is very unmanageable regarding that relationship. You've got to admit that you're powerless over what she did to you. Your life is very unmanageable regarding those things that were done to you. And I said, but how do I choose? She said, you can pray for her what you want for yourself. And I said, what? <laughs> she said, you can pray for her what you want for yourself. I said, but what do you mean? She said, you pray. what do you want? I said, I want to be happy, joyous, and free, and I want to be sober. And she said, pray that for your mother. I said, but my mother doesn't drink. <laughs> she said, that's okay. Pray for her to be sober anyway. And she said, David, if you don't agree to choose to pray for her and choose to stop fighting her, no human being in this world can help you, and you will go back out, and you will get drunk, and you will kill yourself, or you'll wind up in an insane asylum, or you'll wind up in jail somewhere. She said, those are the alternatives. And she said, in fact, if you won't agree to pray, then you have to leave here. I can't help you. And I don't know if she was going to kick me out, but my family did not want me back. You know what I'm saying? They wanted me sober back. You know what he said? God's big enough to handle it, David. And so I went into my backyard, and I looked at him one night, and I So I started doing that. And the first one, it was a real funny little three-line letter. God, I'm pissed off at you, and here's why. And I just went through. You know what I was? I was a third grader, spiritually, when I got here. I was emotionally about a 16, 18-year-old. But spiritually, I was like a little kid. And so I started to write, and I did that for quite a while. And it really was interesting to watch that, that relationship develop in my quiet time in the mornings. When I started Step 4, he asked me to do an inventory. And I had tried all kinds of books and pens, and I was going to create a copyrighted document. You know, we're going to sell it to somebody. And... <laughs> And he said, no, we're not going to do that. He said, we're going to take a legal pad and we're going to take two number two pencils. And he wrote down fears and he wrote down resentments and he wrote down sex and left the whole pad. And, and he said, I want you to write about this. And he had me refer to the big book. And I looked into the big book and he said, on resentments, because I think it's real important. He said, tell, wrote who it is, what, what, you know, your mother, what happened? She kicked me and so forth. Well, what did it affect in you on page 65, I believe, is the big book. And it said, you know, I was afraid, self-esteem and all those issues. And then he said, I want you to go back to 67, page 67. I want you to write down what your part in that resentment was. And I said, uh, well, I didn't have any part. You know, I was just a kid. 
He said, now I want you to understand, David. And what he's helped me see, and we've worked on this, is that there are two things that happen. You know, the difference for me in having an event happen in my life when I was 13, that, and an event happening when I was 13 and for 27 years, resenting it and refilling it and thinking about it and getting angry about it and drinking about it, the difference for me is my need or my willingness to be a victim. You see... What my mother did, and as a child, I don't think any time physical abuse or sexual abuse, any of that is the child's fault, but, but it be as it may, it happened. It was an event. But what my part in it was, was I needed to be a victim. And I played it to the hilt. I'll never forget, I called Keith about four years ago, and I said to him, my boss came in the office today at 5 o'clock, and here's what he said to me. This was about 9.30 on Friday night. He said, and he told me this and this and this, and I was, he wasn't pleased with my work, and I was, I was, boy, I was angry. And I knew I was going to be fired, so pyramids were going. And, and he, said, he said, what time is it? I said, it's 9.30 on Friday night. He said, where are you standing? I said, I'm standing in my den. He said, when did your holiday start? When did your weekend start, David? I said, at 5 o'clock. He said, well, what point in this weekend are you going to choose to let this go? Are you going to hold to it till 9 o'clock tomorrow morning? 6 o'clock on Saturday afternoon? 3 o'clock on Sunday? Or are you going to take it all the way through the weekend and destroy your whole weekend? The only weekend you're going to get this, this year, this week, to celebrate the work that you did. What are you going to do? And I said, I don't know, Keith. He just, you know, I can't believe what he said to me. And you know what he said? He said, what do you get out of being a victim? And I said, I don't get anything, Keith. And he said, you must get something because you keep doing it. And he slammed the phone down. Well, I called him back. And I said, what are you talking about? And you know what we did? We started to look at this thing. And you know what I had given up? I've given up three important things in my life by being a victim. And you know, it was a lifestyle. In fact, in recovery, to me, the only way I can work my steps in my life is when I can get out of my victimhood. If I'm a victim, I work the steps in everybody else's life. And on them. And fix them. It's none of my business. None of my business. You see, the top 15 people on my men's, my eight-step list... Where I went down and he said, look at those, those top 15 or 20. He said, tell me who your persecutors were. Because see, if I'm a victim, I've got to have a persecutor. And I looked and it was God. Let me tell you who they were. My, God, my mother, my father, my brother, my sister-in-law, my sister, my brother-in-law, my wife, my two sons, my father-in-law, my, my mother-in-law, my brother-in-law, and, and my sister-in-law, my Aunt Lassie, and a girl named Betty Jo at work. <laughs> those were the 15 all of my life. In my adult life, those were the people, if they would just understand me, if they would just leave me alone, if they would just let me go, I could show them. And you see what I give up? I give up the right to an intimate relationship with my persecutor. And when I came to this program, and some days I still am, I become abjectly alone, frightened to death, because the very people in my life that should be the closest thing to me in my world, I have treated with disdain and disrespect. I pushed them away. They were out to get me. I give up the right to live without crisis. I had to live in crisis. How are you doing, David? I had to tell you. Oh, you won't believe what happened to me. I had to tell you something. I had to tell you what. How about that new job? Oh, you won't believe what's happening at work. I had to live in crisis because if I'm in crisis, I'm a victim. And you know what he said? He said, what are you getting out of it? And what I've come to the conclusion in the inventory work and the work we've done together, you know what I got out of being a victim? The most powerful thing is I got an, uh, an excuse for unexcusable behavior. That's what I got. That's what I got. I could sit at the bar and they say, don't you think you've had too much? You're drunk, don't you think? If you were raised by my mother, if you were beat like my mother beat me, you'd drink too. Oh, David, I'm sorry. Here, have another one. <laughs> have another one. I've allowed it to excuse unexcusable behavior. It was very powerful for me.
Very frightening to start letting that go. When I got to the eighth step, I, uh, my sponsor said to me, he said, I want you to start acting differently so people can treat you differently. I said, but how do I act differently? He said, when have you seen your mother last? And I lived for a year and a half in recovery, praying for her every day. But I would call her on her birthday. I would see her three or four hours on Christmas afternoon and a couple hours for Thanksgiving lunch. And that's it. We live 65 miles apart. I don't know about you, but I, w- I would want to see her, and I'd go to see her, and I would get there, and I couldn't wait to see her. And about 10 minutes later, I would think, why in the world have I wasted my time to come and see her? It was like she had this vacuum cleaner hooked up, sucking my insides out. It was the most horrible feeling in the world. And he said to me, he said, why don't you start learning how to put furniture between you? He said, if your mother walks over to you, walk around and hold the chair. If she wants to talk to you, sit at the dining room table. Hold the table and know she can't suck your insides out, David. And it was that silly, but I had to have some help, and I kept praying for her. And then at eight, uh, when I got to May step, he said, I want you to write your mother, a year and a half in the recovery. I said, I, I don't have anything to say to her. He said, I didn't ask you anything to say. I want you to write your mother. I said, but what do I say? He said, I want you to say, dear mom, thinking of you, David. I said, but I'm thinking bad thoughts. <laughs> and it, he said, well, she won't know that. She didn't know you're fighting her. So I went to Eckerd's Drugstore and got these little smiley face uh, cards, you know, the little third grader deals. And I put, Dear Mom, thinking of you, David. I mailed it. Nothing happened. Three weeks later, he said, Mail her another one. So I went, Dear Mom, thinking of you, David. Mailed it. You know what happened? She mailed me a card. And she put in there a little article out of the paper about Donald Duck, because I love to talk like Donald Duck. And, and I was reading my cartoon, and she said, Dear David, thank you so much for thinking of me every day. I didn't say that. Thank you for thinking of me every day. She said, she said, I think about you too, and I pray for you so often. You know what I did? I wrote her back. And you know what she did? She wrote me back. You know what I did? I wrote her back. And you know what she did? She wrote me back. And you know what I did? I called her. I said, Mom, why don't you come down and visit Larry? My brother and I live in the same town. Why don't you come down and visit us? And she came down. And she came into our home. And she, she walked in and she sat on the end of the sofa. And the first words out of her mouth besides, Hi, how are y'all? She said, When I was six years old. She was looking at my brother and I. She said, When I was six years old. She said, I sat in my grandmother's lap. And she ran her fingers through my hair and told me what a beautiful girl I was. And, and what a nice person I was. And how much she loved me. And everything within me wanted to say, Mom, I've heard that dumb story 150 times. Why don't we talk? And something inside of me stopped me. And you know what I saw? I saw my mother was scared to death of what to say to her two children. She had no clue. She didn't have a clue. And you know what I saw? I saw me in her. I saw my fear. I saw my terror. I saw my need to be okay in my mother. And what happened is we sat and we talked that day and I continued to write her and she continued to write me. We called. And when I was four years sober, we went on a trip for the first time in our lives. I invited her on my sobriety weekend, fourth weekend. I said, where do you want to go? And she, my dad had taken her years before to see the cherry blossoms in Washington, D.C. And so I rode her up Interstate 95 to see those cherry blossoms. And you know what she told me on the way to Washington that day? By this time, she's 71. She said to me, David, when I was a child, I was terrorized. She said, I was scared to death. I wasn't enough. And she said, I'll never forget when I was 10, I, I, I baked some rolls in the uh, biscuits, uh, as we say in the South, in the oven, and I burned one on the bottom. My, my dad took a tobacco stick and beat me with it. And he, she said, I was scared to death. I wasn't going to please him. And you know what I was able to tell her? Mom, when I was a child, I was terrorized. I didn't know what to do. And you know that day I broke those eggs? I am so sorry I didn't mind you about that bike. She told me not to ride that bike. And I said, I'm so sorry. I said, but it's confused me all of my life. And you know what she said to me? She said, David, there has not been a day in my life in the last 31 years, she knew exactly how many years, that I haven't thought of that incident with tremendous pain and tremendous regret. Can you ever forgive me?
And you know what I realized? That my mother had paid a greater price than I had paid. And it was time to let it go. See, it was time not to be a victim anymore. It was time to move on. It was time to reestablish an intimate relationship with someone. It was time. It was just time. Now, I want to tell you that my mom and I, in fact, we've been through open heart surgery. Or she's been through open heart surgery. I was just like, I didn't do it. But she's been through open heart surgery, and I was there to rub her back. She was an intensive for five and a half weeks, unconscious, semi-conscious, and there to rub her back and wash her feet and do whatever we needed to do. But there was a time about a year ago, she goes to the Senior Citizens Club. She's 76 now, and she goes to the Senior Citizens Club every day. And I go to see her quite a bit with my new business. I'm able to go up and spend the night with her, and she loves that. You know, come up, and she fixed me food and pies and all that. But anyway, I, I, I got there, and I said, Mom, how are you doing? Are you going to the Senior Citizens Club a lot? And she said, yes, I am. And I said, well, have you made any new friends? Now, she's taken me to Senior Citizens. I've gone for lunch, and she's, you know, introduced me to all of her 200 people there. And, and she said, you know, it's, you know, it's just great. It's wonderful. What a wonderful thing. And so uh, she said, yes, I have. And she started to blush. And she covered her mouth, and she started to grin, and she turned away like a little teenager. And I said, what's his name? <laughs> and, and she said, Lawrence. All right. I said, well, tell me about Lawrence. And so she started telling me about it. She said, but David, I don't know if it's going to work. I said, why not? She said, he's a younger man. I said, really? I said, how, how old is he? is he? She said, well, he's six months younger than I am. She's 76, of course. I said, Mom, I think it'll work out. I really do. No. Well, we talked about Lawrence that night, and then she went to bed. I went to bed, and the next morning I, was, I had to leave real early, so I went in to say goodbye, and I sat down at the edge of bed to, to say goodbye and kiss her on the cheek, and she sat up in bed. And you know what she did? She looked at me, and she started crying, and she put her head on my shoulders, and she said, David... She said, thank you so much for accepting Lawrence. She said, I was scared to death to tell you. And she said, and I, I am so lonely and I need someone to go to dinner with me. You don't know what a joy it is to have Lawrence come and pick me up. And you know what? I would have missed that moment if it had not been for the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous and you people and sponsorship. I would have missed that moment. It would not have been a part of my life. I am very grateful for that. Tenth step is an interesting step for me. I have a tendency to want to lie to myself on a daily basis. I take the time to get on my knees and do it, but I lie to myself about it. You know what I'm saying? Was I resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid today? Because if I'm those four things, I can't be of service. I think it's all about being of service. I really do. I really do. My sister, speaking of that, my sister called me about five years ago and said, I want you to be in my wedding. And I thought she wanted to be an usher, and I said, sure, I'd be glad to. She said, I want you to sing in my wedding. I said, Gail, I don't sing that well. I'm, not, I'm certainly not as good as Keith this morning, uh, this afternoon. But I said, I can't carry a, a drum and a, and a tune and a drum real well. And she said, well, why don't you? My wife sings very well. She said, why don't you all sing a duet? So she sent us this tape of Barbara Streisand and Lee Greenwood to me or to be or whatever the name of the song is. And I played this tape all through August and September, and I practiced. You know, we had the sheet music. Well, I go up for this wedding, and I'm, I'm, uh, all the families out there in the church and all, and I'm standing up to sing, and this brick came out called Notes. I have never heard of a note like that. It was horrible. And I got this ball of fear in my gut. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. And I got nauseated and I did not want to be there. And all I could think about is I've got to do this again tomorrow. And I don't know how to do this. And I went to the wedding rehearsal dinner and I was there. I don't know if you've ever done this, but people saying, hi, I'm fine, how are you? I had no idea what they were saying. No idea what they were saying. I was just there. You know what I'm saying? I was physically, I had no idea. My mind was self-absorbed. I have to, I have to do something. The next morning I wake up. I couldn't sleep all night. Had diarrhea the whole nine yards. I get up at six o'clock and I get my big book and I go in to try to meditate and calm down because I'm in knots. And you know what I started doing? I was looking at my big book and I was meditating and the first thought that came to my mind was, and I looked up and I went, Gail, this is David. Yeah, I woke up this morning with a real sore throat. <laughs> and I thought, I can't do that to Gail. I can't do that. Well, I looked back down at my big book and I did it again and I thought, Gail, this is David. And I started practicing. 
Now, you know what I did? You know what I did all of my life? All of my life, when I was not able to face reality and responsibility, I got sick. It was the only excusable reason that I could come up with to, to not face reality. I'd get sick, I'd have the virus or the flu, I'd, I'd be hung over and I'd call in. And I'd go practice. I don't know if you ever practiced, but I'd practice. I'd call my boss and before I got on the phone, I'd practice. Good morning, I'm, I'm really bad this morning. And I'd practice and they'd get on the phone with them and they'd go, boy, you sound sick, don't come in and give it to us. And I'd hang up the phone and I'd go, yes! You know what I'm saying? It's like, I got it, I did it. Then I fit full of guilt about 10 minutes later that I lied about. But I went to my bathroom to get sick. That's where I always went to get sick. And I went in my bathroom and I truly did. I went to the mirror and I pulled my glasses off and I was looking in my eyes trying to get sick and I was practicing talking to Gail and I was going, Gail, this is David. And I glanced up and when I was three months sober, Keith asked me to write on my mirror, David, you're wrong. And, and so I wrote it up in the left-hand corner. It's still there to my wife's dismay. It has not been erased. And I wrote it with a bar of soap. And I glanced up and I looked. I saw, David, you're wrong. And truly, for the first time, I stopped. And I took a 10-step inventory. And I said, my wife's asleep. My two children are asleep. My mother's are 65 miles away. My, my sister's 65 miles away. There's not a person in this world making me afraid but me. That's it. And I said, thank God I'm wrong right now. Because if I was right right now, I'd have to live this way the rest of my life. And I went back in and I committed and asked God to help me to sing to my sister. I didn't care if anybody else heard me or not. But I was there to be of service to her. And I went and I sang to my sister. It wasn't Lee Greenwood. But you know what? She never expected me to be Lee Greenwood. It was my ego that wanted to be Lee Greenwood. Never expected Step 11 for me has been a real important step. It's helping me to learn how to live without thinking. I have, been a, I have been a human doing all of my life. I've never been a human being. I don't know how to be a human being. And this 12-step program is helping me to understand. And what I'm trying to do in my meditation and in my quiet time is to learn that it's okay to be present and be still without talking or thinking. You see, I've always had this feeling if I'm around somebody, if I'm not talking, then I'm in trouble with them. And they don't, you know, it's, it's crazy. This fear, this self-delusion, self-seeking, self-pity, all of those things. And so what I'm able to do is just be quiet. You know, it was a time, in fact, I had to go to Al-Anon Odat book because I could, I tried to read the, 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 the Serenity Prayer, excuse me, the St. Francis Prayer on page 99 of, of the 12 and 12. And I'd say, you know, make me a, ch a channel of your peace. And I'd say, well, what is a channel? What is peace? And I'd start debating, you know, what it is. And I don't know. And, and you know, I'd get crazy after 10 minutes. And there was a section on November 10th in the ODAT book that said, think and, and just get quiet and think of one thing, one image, one piece of fruit, one flower, one bowl. And I thought of a white rose. And you know, I was, and they said do it for 60 seconds. I said, I can do 60 seconds. And I got quiet and I thought of my white rose. And for the first time in my life, and I was 44, the knot in my gut that I did not know I had left me. And only at that moment did I know that I had it. At that moment. South American Indians capture monkeys in a very unusual way. They take a big clay pot and they make it solid clay and they put a cavity on top and they put a long noose neck and it's just big enough for the monkey to fit his hand and arm down in and they put sweet beans. It's kind of like jelly beans to you and I. They take this pot out into the jungle in the clearing. The monkey, they leave it. The monkey sees it that morning, goes over and sticks his or her hand down into that pot, grabs a couple of those beans and then they can't get their fist out of the jug because the noose neck won't let them out. All they've got to do to be free is let go of those sweet beans and then pull their hand right out. Do you know what those monkeys will do? They'll stay there all day long in that hot sun and jerk on that jug with their, those two sweet beans in their fist and they cannot let go and they will not let go. And the, monkey, the, the Indians will come back and club them over the head with a club, knock them unconscious, and when they get knocked unconscious, they'll let go 
And then they pull their hand out and use the same jug, the same sweet beans to catch the next monkey the next day. Do you know what? I am like that monkey. Everything that's happened in my life, I've held on to. Every single thing that was said to me, done to me, and I don't know why I did that. I have not a clue, but I have done that. And see, I thought the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous was just going to be one of these things of this spiritual awakening, and all of a sudden one day I was going to go, I'm fixed, you know, and it hasn't worked that way for me. What it's been for me is I've had to have 150, 200 let-goes. I've had to work step one on my alcoholism. I've had to work it on my relationship with my mother, as I've shared with you. There was a time that I had to understand that God maybe would help us in that relationship, and I had to turn my will and my life over regarding that matter to God. And I had to look at my inventory on that and discuss it with my sponsor and look at my defects of character in that relationship and to make amends where I needed to and to continue to look at daily my amends to my mother and am I doing well for her. And I had to pray and meditate about it. And having had a spiritual awakening regarding the relationship with my mother, then it's enough time to do something else. It was a time I had to let the relationship with my son go. It was a time. It just was a time. You see, I think for me, it's 150, 200, whatever number. It's a lifelong let go. It's a lifelong let go. Because see, the only way I'm going to let go is when I get in enough pain to change. And then I'll let it go. I want to thank you so much for the privilege, I mean that sincerely, of, of allowing me to be here it is a privilege to be able to share with you, and thank you so much for your caring and your, your love that you've given me this weekend. Thanks.